Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Canines Talking Sense. I'm your host, Cameron Ford, and we are, of course, broadcasting out here in Las Vegas from Scent City. So on today's episode, this is a follow-on episode due to really high demand and Great feedback from back when myself, Bart Rogers, and Craig Koshik got on and we talked about the different breeds and genetics and things like that. And just what a response we got from all of you guys as listeners. So we heard your requests and here is your follow-up episode. And with that said, welcome, Bart. Welcome, Craig, back to the episode or back to the uh, program. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. So, like what I was mentioning is uh, really good feedback. Uh, people were super interested in genetics and kind of better understanding why certain breeds do what they do. Um, understanding things like pedigrees, things like breed traits and so forth. And kind of where we left off, we were discussing some of the different breeds. So I'll jump us right off into a breed or a category we didn't talk about heavily, but we can get into it deeper now. And that's going to be the different shepherd breeds. So like German shepherd, Belgian Malinois, Dutch shepherd, things like that. And, you know, getting into how they came about, what gets them hunting, that kind of thing. So I know, Bart, you wanted to kind of talk about that a little bit, and then Craig, of course, jump in. But, Bart, I'll kick it off with you. So, yeah, and, uh, well, yeah, we didn't hit on the, the pointy-eared dogs. We call them um, at, in, in the last episode very much. And, you know, um, so, I mean, they, ha- they have their place, and, and especially when it comes to apprehension work and tracking and trailing. Um, um, but also made great detection dogs and, you know, kind of our, our, our talk last time was, you know, not putting square pegs in round holes, you know, and, um, trying to use one breed for everything and understanding the background of how these breeds evolved and were produced and selected for that, what they're bred for. Um, you know, there's, there's other breeds out there that were, um, maybe better for certain, um, tasks or certain type of working roles, um, especially in detection. And, you know, in my experience, I've trained a few single purpose detection dogs. I've never, I've never been involved um, with apprehension work or bite work with, um, the point of your dogs, but, um, I've had plenty of, um, dogs in the field of point of your dogs and single purpose detection roles. And what I have, I've experienced in, in different breeds of sporting breeds versus them is, um, you had to do a lot of work. You had, you had all the possession in the world um, when it comes to their reward. Um, a lot of motivation from it. But the difference that I've experienced with them is creating the hunt that you need with a dog. Um, you had to do, you had to lay the foundation. There was no um, innate hunt in the dog. No natural hunt from the get-go. Um, they, they hunted solely for the reward um, motivating that, um, where sporting breeds, I've seen, you know, most of all of them is I'm worried more about the reward value, being able to manipulate them in conditioning a, a um, non-biologically relevant target, something that they would have no reason to detect or find and, and having enough reward value to get them there. Um, but I had all the hunt in the world. So, 
you know, that's just a discussion I wanted to start. That we're not leaving the shepherds that out. We're not just here talking about we we're talking about all of them, and you know, probably pass this on to Craig, and he probably can give us a little bit under better understanding of why that is. Well, you know, we take a look at any dog that is, let's call them purpose bred dogs, a dog that is bred for a particular purpose, whether it be one thing, you know, herding or, you know, or pointing or running around or, you know, swimming, um, or, you know, dogs versus dogs that have been not selected to do, you know, one or many things specifically. So, in order to do that, you take a primitive canine, right? You take your basic coyote, you take your, you know, I'm not talking actual coyotes. We call them, you know, a proto dog or a, or sort of a, a, a primitive type of a dog. Some of which, by the way, still exist. I mean, when you look at breeds like Basenjis and certain African breeds are still considered primitive breeds because they're pretty close to the wild dogs or to the, to the primitive sort of uh, feral dogs that, that, you know, sort of developed when humans settled down and became agricultural beings. So you take a look at those dogs and that's your basic raw material. And that raw material, as we spoke of uh, in the last episode is, 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 is wolf-like it's coyote-like. In other words, everything we see in a dog today, no matter what it is, you know, from a teacup poodle to a great Dane, to a, a border collie, to a, you know, a, a Labrador retriever, everything about them is exists within the genome within the actual you know, performance envelope of a wolf or a coyote. A wolf and a coyote can do everything that a border collie does, can do everything that a, you know, a pointer does. But it's the degree to which they do it. Uh, coyotes and wolves point, but not like a pointer. Coyotes and wolves can swim, but they don't swim willingly like a Labrador. They can herd and they can work cooperatively with other members of the pack to, you know, push the deer or the reindeer into a certain corner so they can, you know, become predators upon them. So everything you've got is there. And it's just a matter of saying, you know, it, it's almost like if the coyote was, you know, the alphabet uh, or the wolf was an alphabet. Okay, now we're going to develop a dog that's using only these letters. Um, and we're going to put those letters in this order. We're not using A to Z. We're just, we're, they're there. A to Z is there. Everything in your dog is the same thing that's in a wolf. It's just that the A is a capital A and you got three really big B's and a couple of Z's on this type of dog. And another dog would have a different combination of letters. In other words, we take a look at this big list of qualities that are there and are, which are the ones we want to attenuate, kind of get rid of or reduce, and which ones are the ones that we want to increase and really, really maximize and, 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 and exaggerate. I mean, when you look at the point of a coyote or a wolf and you compare it to a pointer, well, you realize that the pointer you know, he, he, we've taken it to such an extreme that they're in a catatonic state. They've literally yeah. done studies on pointing dogs' brains when they're on a, in a point. And it's almost a, a sort of seizure to them. It, it's just this, this, the brain activity is completely different as to when it's in a normal mode. Once it's pointed, it's just catatonic. Um, you look at a border collie herding something. You can watch a pack of wolves herd some moose in a forest. You watch a border collie do it, and you realize this border collie is OCD about completely, <laughs> just obsessed, and it, it's a compulsion. So that's what we do. So if we're going to look at sporting dogs and herding dogs, the question is, well, what have we attenuated, reduced, and what have we maximized? What have we exaggerated, or what have we given, you know, amplified? Now, the herding dog, obviously you want to attenuate. You want to 
reduce certain things about the predation. You, you want a dog that herds sheep, but doesn't kill sheep and doesn't go out seeking other sheep to kill. So you attenuate that. And, and in so doing, you reduce what Bart, you just said, the hunt. That dog isn't there seeking something. That dog is there reacting to something that's in its presence. Without that thing being in its presence, it, it doesn't feel this, this gnawing itch that says, I got to go find something. It's just waiting for something to be there. And then, oh, oh yeah, now I've got to control that thing. I've got to hurt it. A pointing dog, a sporting dog, uh, it's the opposite, right? The opposite is this dog, unless, I, I mean, I have sporting dogs and everybody's seen these types of, you know, really highly wired dogs. If they're not sleeping, they're looking for something. They're, they're, they're literally obsessed with finding something. And one of the things that was really revealing to me was I had a, a female and she was a wine runner, very, very driven dog that would just run till she dropped. And as she got older, I believe she, she started suffering from the equivalent of, of you know, human dementia. She just started kind of getting senile mm -hmm. in her older years. And so she would forget things and she would, she went a little bit deaf and her eyes wouldn't go. But the, the only thing right towards the end, the only thing that was still with her to a thousand degrees was this search behavior. In fact, she would get up in the middle of the night and, and just patrol the house, just wander around looking for something. She was just, the, the look for, the seeking behavior, the seeking part of her genome was so strong that it was the last thing. She could barely walk around. Actually, she was almost 17, but she would spend hours and hours just looking for something in the house. She didn't know what she was looking for, neither did we, but that's all she would do. And, and so that sort of convinced me that, you know what, that's one of the things I've seen eight, 10 week old setter and pointer puppies. You put them in a field, they run like their asses on fire and they have no idea why they're just seeking stuff. So, so that's the long answer to your question, Bart, is that we take traits in the prototypical canine, we exaggerate some and we reduce others. Yeah. And, uh, we, you know, as we've said in, in our, you know, the dissection dog world, and, and breeding that I've been involved in is, is the, the predatory fixed action pattern uh, from the wolf. There's just certain pieces of it from, you know, um, stalking, you know, uh, and, and chasing, um, grab, bite, kill, dismember. What, what portion do you, you put emphasis on and selective pressure on? And um, when it comes to some of the pointy-eared dogs, you, you've got more of the grab, bite, kill um, emphasis pressure put on those and less on hunting. So, but you have this extreme reward value and that reward value you can still use to manipulate um, the hunt or artificially created. It's not natural. Um, but you know, they're, they're, they both have their place and you know, we can, we can move on from, from here and talking about that and clarifying it. Um, so yeah. yeah, I would just like to add that you're right in that when you exaggerate or attenuate certain characteristics, you also mm -hmm. attenuate or exaggerate the motivation for them to, mm -hmm. or the strength of that motivation and the strength of things. So if you've got a dog, like you say, that's reward based, where throwing a little Kong or a little you know tennis ball is the is the center of the earth, that's the greatest reward this dog could ever have. Well, that dog's very easy to train for certain behaviors. Um, but then you say, if, if you sort of wait for that dog to show motivation or to go out and hunt, you're going to be waiting for a while. Yeah, there um, you go. And, 
but the other way around is with the sporting dogs, these dogs that are obsessed with seeking things and especially with chasing things. Um, we're talking, you know, like, like, like the sight hounds, you know, which are just, you, you, you tie a plastic bag to a cord or to a chain and you run around a field with it. That thing will run after eyes. <laughs> I mean, it just, it's just running after something. So the classic example is, is when a lot of people tell me about positive reinforcement that you should never use any negative reinforcement or any, I'm sorry, any, any, just, you know, um, uh, punishment, positive I mean, punishment, punishment. You should never yeah. punish them, punish them for certain things. You should always reward them. That gets super tricky in certain cases when there is nothing like some of these dogs are hardwired so bad are so hardwired that there is no punishment in the world that they, they would walk through burning rings of broken shards of glass uh, to get to what they want to do. And no matter, and so there's the punishment sometimes doesn't work. It's just never enough. And nor does, there is no greater reward. What can you offer this dog that is greater than, you know, chasing this thing. And the, the, the example I give, if you look online, I love this one because the real, you know, hardcore positive only trainers is a lot of them. A friend of mine actually wrote a book on it. She's British and in England, that's, you know, the thing. And, and they do some fantastic work. I, I, you know, don't mean to disparage them. I, I believe in what they do, but I, I also believe that there's limits to what you can achieve. And the one yes. classic example is Fenton. Okay. F E N T O N. It's a dog named Fenton. And all you have to do is go on YouTube and, you know, Google Fenton deer park. And it's this poor English guy that must've taken his Labrador retriever or some kind of, yeah, it looks like a lab uh, or maybe a collie of some sort of, and he's out in the park and all you see is this massive herd of deer running across the park. And then you see this dog running after them. And then you hear this guy going, Benton, Benton. He's trying to call his dog off. And I just thought of this poor guy and his dog. And I'm thinking that dog's brain is on those deer. There's nothing you could do, you know, short of lassoing him. <laughs> but there's no Fenton. If you stop now, I'll give you a treat. Fenton, if you do this, well, there's nothing in the world you could tell that dog or do with that dog to, to, to stop him in that act. And so that is that desire. And there, that just showed me that there's certain, because I know there's probably a hundred people or a thousand and even looking at that going, well, if that was my dog, I would do X, Y, and Z. And I'm telling them, no, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. there's just no way in hell that dog was in full flight after a whole goddamn Heard of deer? Yeah, no. <laughs> it's no. too late now. Well, I think that plays in pretty well to our, you know, what we're talking about. So in the last episode, we talked about, you know, these sporting breeds. And, you know, now we're talking about, you know, the, you know, the pointy years too in comparison to it. And I think you hit on a good thing is even within them, the sporting breeds, of uh, they may be better suited for different tasks, acknowledging that their breeds of their background and what they were bred for may acknowledging that you may be well suited for the task you want other than the more commonly used, you know, corn-eared shepherds, miles, Dutch shepherds, labs, GSPs. There's a lot of other things out there, but even taking that into consideration, we probably need to put a lot of emphasis on selecting the phenotype that we want um, and not to the extremes like you're talking about with Fenton, you know, a GSP, they make great detection dogs. The lab makes great detection dogs. But if you get a GSP that's too birdy, mm -hmm. um, too, too motivated for that, you can do all the training in the world and you'll look great. 
first time you see a bird or a squirrel move in the field when you're working him, he's not playing your game anymore. Nope. You're screaming Fenton. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. The, that, that genetic, those genetics yeah, take way, over. Video has, that video has like 100 million views. <laughs> wow. I think I've seen it. And I think I've been there before a few times. And, and you guys bring up some really. Well, I, and I think that's the reason we left. No, I was going to say, you guys are bringing up some really good points with the fact that, you know, um, and Craig, if you want to expand upon this a little bit more, the seeking behavior versus searching behavior. And there's there's a difference, and a lot of people may not understand um, the difference in seeking versus searching. So I'll kind of let you two, I'll start off with Craig, and then Bart, of course, jump in and yeah. explain even more. You know, it's hard to parse, especially from the sporting, because we use the words sort of interchangeably or depending on the venue. For instance, there is NAVDA, the North American Versatile Hunting Dog Association, based on German um, tests. There is an event in that. It's, it's a series of events. You put your dog in throughout the day, and it's judged in the water and on the land and running and pointing and fetching and doing all sorts of things. And they use um, the term search, field search, and uh, search for duck in the water. And both of those, they're, they're, you know, they use the word search. In, um, in, in England and the French translation to it, they use the word questing. Um, so it, it's, again, they're somewhat synonymous, and, and I, I wouldn't be the best one to, to be able to differentiate between the seeking behavior and the searching behavior. Um, but what I know is that there is this marked difference um, between what they're doing with their nose. Their nose is sort of like a radar. It's out there scanning their horizon. But their actual action, the action of running, is one that there, there's not, in a way, there is no real purpose other than to cover as much ground as possible. These dogs want to get out mm-hmm. there and cover the ground because they're kind of searching for it, almost like a search party looking for a lost child. You just kind of cover every bit or try, or depending on the culture, depending on the, system that they're in. The Americans prefer what's called hitting objectives, whereas in England and other places they use a quartering pattern. So the English and some Europeans will develop their dogs that have a natural, what's called a quartering pattern. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you'll see this dog and it's somewhat mechanical. They're trained for it, but a lot of them, it's instinctual now because they've been selected for for so many generations. You cast them off and they will run, you know, two, three, 400 yards out to your right turn into the wind and then head back to your left and head another couple hundred yards. And so it's basically like a windshield wiper in front of you. As you walk forward, the dog is questing to your left and then turning and questing to your right back and forth. So it's, it's windshield wipering in America and, and the American pointers and setters. We have a tendency here to say, you know what? I don't need that. We, we don't have these uniform fields that look like basically a, a pool table full of grass. We have, a bluff of bushes over there. We got a little hillock over there. We've got a little cop to the thing and we got a tree. So we let the dog, as long as that dog is somewhere in front of us between let's say 10 o'clock and two o'clock, as long as it's out there somewhere, it can do what's called hitting objectives. In other words, if that dog makes a beeline towards that line of trees over there, because in experience, that's where it's found birds or it sees a little bit of sort of gnarly cover over there. It'll make a beeline over there. So an English person or some of the Europeans will look at our dogs thinking, what the hell are they doing? There's no pattern. There's no back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Whereas for us, we look at them and going, well, why are you covering all this useless ground when birds are normally found in that type of cover or the 
what we're seeking is over in that sort of stuff. So there is a difference in terms of the independence of the search. Here, we have a more objective uh, uh, search pattern. In other words, the dog looks with its eyes for something that looks likely to hold game. Whereas in, in other cultures, they've developed them so that they forget your eyes. Just go on this pattern and just, you know, use your nose like a little radar. And then once you get that beep, 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 you're done. Boom. Point. Yeah. And, and so, so that's the searching behavior. And, and I don't know, maybe Bart, in, in your world, there's a difference between search and seek. I'm not sure. Yeah, you're, you're, no, you're, you're, there is a different terminology. So I listen to this and, and, and evaluating dogs and not coming. Well, I did come from a hunting background, but not in the depth knowledge that, that you are. But when you're talking about the, you know, the more British quartering or European quartering pattern, um, utilizing the wind and um, having you know, based on there's no structure. It's all this homogenous thing that they're working. But that's what we, we, we deal with that all the time. I, like, so from my, my perspective and what the, our breeding program and our target and, you know, our target goal is dogs that are, could do person born IED or PBID detection. We've had in the vaporweight dog um, is I do a balance. So when you're talking about in America, we, we, bird hunting you do objectives the, in, in the detection world we call that pro- productive areas target areas where in your training the dog says hey you walk in a warehouse and it's completely empty and there's a, a few boxes over here in a corner and uh, a shelf on the other side that has stuff on it some clutter the dog's probably not going to work normally like there's things there he's going to run to those areas first investigate them just like he would run to a clump of a hedgerows in the middle of a field and go, that's cover for the bird. That's a productive area. And what we do is, is we, we, I'm breeding dogs that I can balance to do both of those things. And it comes from selecting from the breed and even the differentiation between the the, the variability with the breed and and from the, the Southern dog, the water work dog, um, which is eyes and memory and straight line running, you know, and being able to take directionals from the hand, that, that trainability to upland um, breeds of dogs, which is funny when we, we get into that, the upland breeds that I'm looking for have are heavy pressured from some British lines, but then cross back with American field lines. So yeah, no, you, you search and think, I think when you, you said, way you said that is exactly what, we experience with dogs, two different types of dogs, the heavy air scenting dogs that will run around with their nose in the air. They might as well be blind. You know, they're like little missiles, heat seeking missiles, but it's odor. It's odor seeking missile. He doesn't see anything. He's just working air currents and that's great, but not great for every application. So if my dog needs to be able to screen thousands of people coming through a choke point, that's what I want. But I also need to be able to take that dog and search targets in a standard traditional ED thing when I need them. I can't just have a niche dog for this and this stuff. So I'm selecting for both of those and then laying the foundation and training. And that comes to knowing the genetics, um, the pedigrees and the breeds itself. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah, I, would also, I would also suggest that, you know, there's also a difference in, so when a dog is out there, whether he's 20 yards in front of you or, you know, a thousand, like there are dogs that'll seek a kilometer or more from me. (laughs) 
English pointers. Um, <laughs> yeah, but no, there are others that'll go yeah. even further than that. There are those um, Wachtelhund in, in Germany and certain dogs. In fact, all of the dogs that they use in Germany, even I, my friend raises English Cocker Spaniels. And mm-hmm. she's, she's developed a line of German English Cocker Spaniels now that'll quest over a kilometer from her. And bar, uh, yeah, it's crazy. That's, when a, I, that's out of gun range. <laughs> a little bit, right? Yeah. Because, yeah. because what, they're, what they're trained to do is to go out there and when they come in contact with game, they bark at it and then force it hopefully back towards the waiting gun, right? So they're, mm-hmm. they're kind of hurting it in a way. And apparently they bark and she says, oh yeah, I can tell if it's a boar or a deer because of the way it barks. She says, when it's a deer he barks like a normal dog. When it's a boar, he's screaming like he's really mad. (laughs) I know the difference. So some dogs will quest really, really far. Now, when we're talking the sporting dogs, like the bird dogs and stuff, especially when you say English pointers and setters, whether they're in Europe or in the States, they need to keep in contact. In other words, they need to know. So even that little cocker has to sort of understand or realize Mm -hmm. or remember where I started and where I should go back. Right. So, You've got a pointer that's um, running out in front of you. Uh, in England, if, if the handler says a single word to that dog, every so often they're allowed to whistle, but excessive whistling is you know penalized in field trials. So that was, I was in field trials. I, we visited England a couple of years ago and we watched some field trials. The one thing that I was amazed at is the silence. There's a trailer full of dogs. There's not a peep coming out of them. The people in the field, nobody speaks except the handler once in a while will, will whistle. That's it. It's mainly done in silence. That same breed of dog pointers that are in the States, in all-age field trial, the handler is on horseback. And what handlers do is they sing to their dogs. And it's called singing, but it's actually, you know, whoops and whoops and way up and down. All kind, and every handler has his own vocabulary and his dogs understand it. They sometimes whistle as well, but it's a lot of, like I say, Hey, oh, bye, oh, oh, that sort of a singing. And so you've got two handlers competing and two dogs on the ground. And it's almost this little back and forth chorus of, of singing throughout the fort or throughout the, the, the route. And so these dogs on one side of the ocean have been bred and, and selected to, to work in complete silence. They're not dependent they have to keep visual eye on their, it's mm. rare that they get lost, but the way they keep in touch with their owner or their handler is they keep an eye on them. In the States, they're sometimes so far or they're in the piney woods or they're all over the next hill. They don't know where they are visually, but with their ears, they know where the guy is because he's keeping in contact with them. And he's saying, listen, I'm turning to the left. I'm turning to the left. And they will make a big old sweep over to the left or to the right. Again, Sometimes they get lost, but somewhere in those dogs selection has been this idea that I need to pay attention with my ears and the other ones I need to pay attention with my eyes. Now with detection and with the work you do, Bart, I have no idea if that's the case, if certain handlers always must or always do work in silence or others talk to them constantly. I don't know what that culture is. All I know is in the sporting dogs, there are two cultures, one where it's pretty noisy and the other one where it's complete silence. Well, I mean, yeah, it's interesting to hear that um, because, and Cameron knows just as well, and he probably had to this, is uh, probably more so um, with their ears, but we try, when you talk about the independent, that's a, that's a huge thing. That's the thing I select for is that independence to work independently, but working with me. I don't have to stay on you. And I, 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 I grade out dogs that, 
every point, you know, three, five, um, 10, 12 months. And then if I select them breeder, then I, I, I have a period of time before they're bred, I bring them back and, and evaluate them again. And I'm looking for the independence and task engagement. How much input do they need from me? And what kind of input is that to stay on task? And then how naturally do they want to stay on task, but work with me without, without having a handler cue or handler dependency problem? He doesn't need input from me to tell him he's doing the right job. He doesn't need input from me to think he's, he's gaining information. He needs input of where I am so we can clear an area. So when he finds it, me and that dog as a team, I can reward him and praise him. And that's where it goes back to the hunt and the cooperative, the cooperative type work from the sporting breeds. And, you know, what we're talking about with shepherds and mouths is, is a lot of it's just all possession. A lot of it's not the cooperative, but there's, there's variance between all these different breeds that could be used for detection work. And personally, I would say it's more the, the, the ones that are listening, someone not heavily that I can just say over check here. Uh, you know, I can give them a little more input to say, Hey, we're tightening down, really going to detail or not. We're not opening up loose searching. Um, but they're, they're not to the extent that they're watching me. Definitely not watching me. They need to be seeing they're hitting their productive areas that we were talking about. And they are focused on interpreting odor when they're in odor. Um, but they need a level of cooperative, cooperative working or need to need or want to desire to work with me. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, you know, I put in, there's, there's independence and collaboration. You know, I want that dog who's independent can work without a whole lot of steering for me. But when the time is, when the time comes, we need to collaborate. Collaboration is not only a control factor, but collaboration is communication. Knowing how to teach the dog to communicate Mm -hmm. with me, how I communicate to it, like Craig was saying with those uh, examples of the, how the guys sing to the dogs, that's a communication system that they understand and how they go about teaching all of that is, is super important. And, you know, on a lot of those topics you guys are hitting, one of the things uh, was that like genetic, you know, hardwired type behaviors. And one mm-hmm. of the things that always gets me is when I see a detection dog team that has a pointer and like Craig's point was earlier, those pointers get into that like catatonic state when they're on point <laughs> yet. There's the yet in the human aspect, because it's detection, it's law enforcement, etc. All of a sudden now we have to make this dog sit and then they're breaking yeah. that catatonic state to get a dog to sit because that's what they think they had to do. And you're how much you're fighting mother nature when you're doing something like that, just for something that you wanted to see or that you felt you had to do because it was written down somewhere. Or that's the way the culture was uh, in your unit. Every dog must sit, but you did not take in consideration the breed you're working with. And many don't really think about that. And many of those points that you guys have been making uh, for the past little bit here is let's just take the herding dogs and Craig, you mentioned this in the last episode was reason why so many different detection disciplines utilize shepherds of some sort is because it derived from law enforcement. Well, if the police mm-hmm. have it, we want to have it. And I see so often, and I'll single out in this situation or example, the search and rescue community, 
they utilize the you know German shepherds, Malinois, you know Dutch shepherds, etc. Many times, the level of motivation and drive those dogs have far exceeds handler capability. Number one, number two, the <laughs> dog's ability to search effectively because it's not really in a search mode. It's it's genetics of herding is coming out. So it's constantly looking around and wanting to herd something or find something. And like what you brought up, Bart, is it was in a sense artificially implanted the searching behavior mm-hmm. through toy and chase games. So now you've built this foundation of something that doesn't totally make sense to the dog, but yet it's going to try to do this. But then when it doesn't do that, the human tries to step in and control it or redirect it to do it, what it wants to do. And then there's this, you know, battle that goes back and forth or this, you know, problematic aspect of trying to train something that you've put in artificially that goes against genetics. Then Mm. through that technique, whatever technique you use, most times it's going to be some form of either luring or compulsion type or control type. Then you've got conflict and then you wonder why. And then again, that motivation that that dog brings to the table, then, you know, sometimes exceeds the handler capability or trainer capability, depending on the situation. And all of this isn't even considered. It's just, well, I don't understand why they don't get it. I don't understand why my dog is so crazy. I don't understand, you know, they're, they're not truly. And I say, and this kind of goes for everything. This isn't just a SAR comment, but there, we are as humans, not understanding how we got there because we failed to really understand the genetic aspect of the dogs and how they got to where they are because they were bred to do this other type of task. And yet we are now trying to do it and make it do this because of it's the dog we wanted versus the dog we needed, which is something we brought up last time too. Uh, People have to start understanding, you know, get the dog you need versus the dog you want. But man, it's that, that in itself is a battle. So in that whole get the dog you need versus the dog you want, I wanted you guys to kind of cover in detection dogs that are designed to point versus designed to flush and designed to herd. Now we've talked a little bit about each one, but let's get into the sporting dogs because even within the sporting breeds, there's mm-hmm. labs that are pointing, pointing labs and retrieving mm-hmm. labs. Then there's the pointers that are pointing and some flushing. And then there's the derivatives, Visla and Weimariner, kind of the cousins in that family. And then the Spaniels, you got the working Cocker and the Springer. And then we can throw in Golden Retriever for fun. But in those, just those breed categories right there under the sporting, talk about the difference just in almost like pointing and flushing and how important this is to understand where your dog's genetics are when it comes to detection. Because some of the things that you're fighting against, especially if you need a dog as a detailed type searcher, that mm-hmm. won't work really well for a flushing type dog. Yeah, I, 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 I love this topic. This is what I've experienced in my career. Is one of the earliest things that I had to do is probably 10 years ago. I, had, I luckily got to train um, a green. I mean, he was green uh, from Europe. I believe he was out of Serbia. Uh, a Dutch Drada. And I'm talking had the motivation you wouldn't believe. The hunt um, that you wouldn't believe. The reward value. The prey drive. The only other dogs I've ever seen that had prey drive. And I've had Malinois. Only other dogs I've had prey drive higher than him are greyhounds. And greyhounds have the highest prey drive I've ever seen. Um, 
but I was training, you know, and I'm, I'm young and dogs got to sit, right? Every contract for the dog, you locate the target, got to sit. There's no problem learning odor. He has a problem with me going outside and telling him to sit and he sits perfectly. But when he encounters the odor, once it's classically conditioned paired with his reward, we have a point. I may, I, every time I spent two weeks, I probably worked thousands of trials in different scenarios of getting this dog to sit every time we, you know, we might get one trial and then he's like, yep, I'm confident this is the odor. He would find it and full, beautiful point. I mean, just, and it was clear to me. I mean, it should be anybody that's he's on odor and that is source. So, you know, given if you have to have a sit, which I would think that at this point we need to be reconsidering that for some of these breeds is, is, you know, why do we need that sit? Like, how can you mistake a point? A point is not standing still. A point is the whole emotional, like you said, catatonic state. You cannot mistake it. The dog, you cannot earn, inadvertently look down at your dog and go, oh, he's standing still. Is there a target there? Is there an explosive there? Is it, this? You can't mistake it. But I think there's people in, in places that, that don't understand that. So we have to have this operant sit response. And I would like someone to do a study, I, you know, I, to, to, with the operant full sit response, you know, class one into operant, you know, odor, you know, reflexive, elicits this change of behavior. Well, some of these pointers, like the one I'm talking about, he went into full on point, can't be a mistake. Which one's better? I would bet that the dogs that are taught an operant response once an odor, you know, instead of something that is emphasized freeze in their, you know, elicited reflexive response, I bet you get more faulted. I do not believe that the pointers or dogs that show that strong change, but they don't always have to be pointers. I've got labs that have so much value for anticipating the reward that when they get the odor, you can build the duration on that confidence and freeze. And I, and that's an emotional thing. It's more classic. It's not offering. So I bet they can, you, you could not have a dog fault unless you actually train the dog improperly and it thinks some odors are what it's rewarded for. But the dog could not give a operant response. Could never get confused if whether it was odor at source and sitting or just sitting when it decided it wanted a reward. That would go away. Um, but even out of that, you know, into uh, the, the spaniels and, um, you know, what you're saying in, in the the extremes of how they work and the, the the flushing versus hunt is you don't want the you don't want the pointers that range too far and less cooperative. You want pointers that work with you. You want and the spaniels tend what well, they have to based on their breeding and their history of them is they work more cooperatively. But you don't want the extremes of the flush. Right, mm-hmm. and the flush gets in a problem. Like I know you probably experienced it by now. Is you know the dog is too birdie. Like when now that the reward is, he's going to have all the reward value for chase and ball and a lot of retrieve and cooperative um, interaction. But once he once he gets an odor, he may speed up, and that's unproductive. Uh, he may get an odor and bounce around. He may search erratically because his some of the you know their work is hit odor. The bird get in there. Um, get in that thick stuff and cause chaos till it comes out when you're in order. And you don't want to be on the string that you want the dog that has a high hunt, but maybe not the prey drive, prey kill that is going to speed them up and cause problem once in odor. 
um, or they'll be distracted if they see an, a stimulus like an animal or a bird while they're working. Yeah, the thresholds in what you're describing. So let's yeah. just take uh, the herding breeds. The thresholds go really high when there's movement <laughs> involved or stimulation of movement. And that high level of arousal can be very hard to redirect. Now, let's take those sporting dogs. When they go, as the British call them, beaters, they, they're beating the bush to get the bird out. The mm -hmm. the beaters get really you know motivated and they fight really hard to, to work. So it's one of those things that you got to learn what triggers that dog and what how to manage that threshold. Now, with the sporting breeds it becomes a little bit easier to manage because like you said there's not that catch kill mm -hmm. aspect of that of that yeah. herder where that spaniel is just you know or pointer is so driven just to flush the bird and like you said just run around it becomes easier and now that i've worked both i can definitely say both go over threshold you know pretty easily depending on what the stimulus is but to work or have that collaboration is much easier with the sporting breeds than it is the herding breeds. The herding breeds are a little bit more like, screw you, mm -hmm. I'm doing what I'm going to do, and you're going to have to figure it out. Um, really good points. In, in, I'm not sure if people can hear my little puppy spaniel screaming in the background. <laughs> but the, uh, the, the, you know, when they're, you know, one of these big things that we deal with is just, you know, those natural innate drives and how to utilize those for detection. And there's a, it's very important for us to understand what makes it tick. So, you know, talk about a little bit of, um, you know, some of the breed derivatives, like you just did, Bart, you brought up the, the Drothar, um, mm -hmm. going into maybe some of the different, uh, Craig, the, the variations of pointer in a sense, when you've got your Visla and your Weimariners, um, and I'll, I'll let one of you guys talk about Cocker, uh, working Cocker versus Springer and what we've seen. And then I'll circle it back to what we've seen today when it comes to pointers, uh, and what happened when the demand went way up. Yeah. Can I, can I just jump in and just to, yeah. just to add a couple of uh, items? Um, the difference between pointing dogs and flushing dogs, um, at the base level, um, they're both strongly motivated to seek. They, they want to find something. Um, so I don't think that you would find a big difference in terms if you could, you know, drill down and find a, the, the gene sequence that says, go look for something. It's going to be, you know, blinking red on both of them. They want to find <laughs> something. Yep. The difference is going to be how far from the handler they go. Uh, spaniels, because of the fact that they flush at the end, they push the bird out of cover or rabbit out of cover. They must be within gun range. So normally it's a very strong genetic trait that they won't go much further than 20, 40 yards from you. Some of them do, sure, but you train them and they stay close. Uh, but genetically speaking, they're going to want to stay close. A pointing dog starts where a flushing dog ends. In other words, the useful range of a pointing dog is generally said to be where gun range is, like after gun range, 50, 60 yards. Because within gun range, why not just use a spaniel? It'll flush for you. Mm. A pointing dog can range out anywhere from beyond, just beyond gun range to a mile. Because he, the difference is when he finds it, he doesn't flush it, which would be useless. You can't get a shot that far. Mm. And he stands there and he points it and waits for you to get there. So, you know, at the beginning of the sequence, they're, they're both very similar. They're looking for something. It's what happens. It's how far they are away from you. And the distance they're away from you is dependent on what they do. 
because a flushing dog is going to flush that game and it better be within range or the pointing dog is going to hold it for you. So in those regards, they're, they're, they're similar, but I want to add a third category and it's one I mentioned um, last time. So there are other dogs that will seek again, that are very highly driven to find something and they work at range, typically at a pointing dog range or even further. And I'm sure there are breeds that, and I'm sure they could be trained to work closer. That would be probably the easiest thing to do would be to, you know, or even keep them on a leash. But instead of flushing and instead of pointing, their instinct is to bark uh, or to bay uh, or to stand their ground. So the typical one is a Laika. There is several L-A-I-C-A, Russian and Northern European, Finnish and Sweden and Norway. They, they're, they're a spit type of a dog. They even have similar dogs types of dogs uh, in Japan, Korea, places like that, whereby these dogs are basically sent out into the forest to go find something. And unlike, you know, some of the dogs we used to find something, bark at it and chase it back towards us, they basically look at game that's going to stand its ground. Things like capercaillie, big black grouse or moose. Um, They will find it. And the, the reaction of that game species isn't to run away, but it's to put their horns down or to stand their ground and just pop up their chest and go, come on, you want some of this? And the dog just barks or they'll hop into the, you know, the, the bird will hop into a tree and just sit there because he knows he's quote unquote safe. Meanwhile, that dog is barking his head off. Why? Because it knows that the handler is a hundred, 200, 500, a thousand yards away and he's going to hear him. And as long as I keep barking, I know that at some point he's going to come over and, and shoot that animal for me. So that's that third response, flush, point, or bark. Um, and then there's, you can go one step further, there's other ones that will, you know, run, find, bark, and then chase. They, and chase and try to make sure that that, because that, game animals tend to, when they run, they tend to run in big circles. So that's the theory, that they're not going to mm-hmm. run in a straight line over the hill. They're just going to make a big old circle and come back. So that, I would say, is an important difference when you're looking at spaniels and pointing dogs, and then these other breeds, like Spitz breeds, or Nordic breeds, I would call them Nordic Leica type breeds, is their response that once they've found what they're looking for, they all have extremely high desire to find stuff. But what do they do once they find it? Um, and Bert, your observation of that pointing dog, you know, the drat are not wanting to sit when it's pointing. Mm. Um, there's, a, there's an element of cooperation there, all right? So you're right. It is a catatonic state that the dog is very unwilling to break, especially, and I would say above all, if the handler is present, he's doing his job in his mind. Genetically, he's done his job. I'm pointing. Now it's you, you do what Mm. you need to do. You shoot it, you capture it. You, I'm not going to seize it. You're the Caesar in this whole operation here. Right. Mm. But there are pointing dogs that do a behavior called reporting. And, and I've got, stories of this in my new book coming out. And, uh, and, and it, it, Finland and Sweden and Russia are famous for this again, in the same area where these barking dogs are, they, they use pointing dogs in, the, in a peculiar way. The pointing dog will be in the forest and he'll run around. And just like these barking dogs, these Leica dogs, he'll find something. Now the Leica would sit there and bark at it. Well, the pointer will point it, but the pointer is so far away from the handler and he knows the handler doesn't know where he is. And he's not, <laughs> he's not so what he does is he actually breaks point. He actually returns to the handler and indicates by his body language. It's very animated. He starts jumping around and wagging his tail, basically saying like Lassie who found Timmy down the well, well like, yeah. dude, dude, I know where this bird is. Follow me. And then it'll carefully make its way back and point it again. And so there's that behavior. You run, you find something, flush it. You run, find something, point it. 
but that's because the handler and I, we know where each other are. He's going to be along pretty soon. You, you find something, you run around, you find something, you bark. He comes to me or you run around, find something, point, you wait, mm, dude's not coming. I better go get him. And you turn around and get him. So that catatonic state is not unbreakable, but mm. I would say that if you're in the presence of that dog doing it, it's much stronger because he's wondering what the hell dude, why are you not seizing this thing that I'm pointing? You're right there. I don't have to come and get you. I don't have to break it for any reason. I've done my job. It's your turn now. Yeah. And that's kind of actually how we, we, we conditioned that dog was putting more distance and and not making the, the thought of the reward coming or the flush was imminent by me being really close was more to like do the opposite of what you would do with labs. I'm typically with labs and, and in dogs, you're, you're te- teaching the odor. If you're having a response issue, it's body position or that's the furthest he's been away from you. So now he's not sitting. In this case, it was the exact reason you're saying is understanding that dog is I'm bred to when you're present, I've done my job. You've got to go in and finish this for me. I was causing a problem and had no idea. But when I backed off of him and said, I'm going to, I thought of what I was doing was sending him out. I'm just going to wait forever. And you're eventually going to do it because you know how to sit. And uh, what it was, was distance. When he was at mm-hmm. a further distance from me, then he offered up something else that he needed. But when I put him in that situation, like you're saying, he's bred for, couldn't overcome that. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that was literally, that's crazy to hear you say that because it was, you know, retro thinking back now. Um, that that's that's how we fixed it. And yeah, that's makes sense. Yeah, really good points because yeah. you know how it's important for people to know about your breed. But then, what yeah. was your breed purpose? Because like we're bringing mm-hmm. up within the breeds, there is these different you know variations that exist that are very specific skill related. Just like you know, Craig, you're talking about that uh, pointing and then going back. Getting to me, that obviously is a huge advantage for those in search or rescue. Um, recall refund. Yeah. I mean, yeah. huge, but or, then go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, you know, thinking about Tim, you know, like when you guys say search and rescue, uh, there's two scenarios. I, again, I'm, I'm no expert in this, but there's two scenarios. It's, you know, it's the, it's the burned out building or the rubble where they're looking for survivors underneath it. So you've got a dog basically on a leash and, and mm-hmm. it's very close. The yeah. dog's not going to be far. He's, he's picking through the rubble trying to find it. But then there's the other one, you know, mm-hmm. a little four-year-old wandered away from the ranch, mm-hmm. been gone a day. It could be anywhere in that thousand acres. Yeah, well, the wilderness. If I had it, yeah. the wilderness stuff. Yeah. If I had my druthers, I wouldn't be getting an army of guys on quads, you know, combing through the forest. I'd get about half a dozen like us yeah. <laughs> that were, that were trained to find little, that, that, that their whole thing was instead of Capricaly or moose, it was little Jimmy. And I would just let them loose. And I guarantee within an hour or two, you'd be hearing a barking somewhere. Bark, bark, bark. He found it. And that's what he does. He just barks, you know, to, to, to do it. And covers a heck of a lot more terrain than anybody else could, you know. And that genetically is, is, is he's not, he's not, won't stand there and point it. He's not going to flush little Jim. He's just going to bark his head off saying, yeah. I got him. He's right here. And that's, you know, let me ask the next question is, you know, a lot of listeners are like, well, then how do I find this type of dog? You know, you know, th- those are great things I want to know about, but how do I find them? Yeah. And how, how do we, how do we, like we started talking about, how do we promote them? How do you had now we, we don't want like the GSD like we talked about is you, you go get that breed, 
But there's other breeds. Don't exhaust that breed and cause yes. the problem of what, what, you know, now GSTs just show up and, oh, they're great and wonderful. And now it's very hard to find the ones that I was seeing seven, eight, ten years ago. Um, Even two years much. ago. Even two years ago. Or now they're seven months old and they say they're a year old when you get them. Yeah. <laughs> no. I, well, the thing I'm seeing, so great example. I'm glad you brought that up because, mm. you know, just a few years ago, as people may have seen or followed me, I was using pointers quite a bit. And then more recently over the past year, it's been medical problem after medical problem yep. or behavioral issues that were not there. And much of this is to me in my point of view. And I, I know others that it was this all of a sudden, rush to breed to produce numbers for clients or buyers and not giving the thought process to, you know, the, the background of whoever they were breeding to, you know, the male and the female and maybe what their backgrounds were or the right, you know, genotypes to mix together to, to do this, you know, and to be successful. Um, I can't believe how fast I've seen to me, the degradation of, what was much easier to find good quality to now it is much harder to find something uh, that's either doesn't have a medical problem or a behavioral problem within just that yeah. one breed. Yeah. And even the Vishla, I can remember the first time I saw a Vishla, I saw about a hundred at Lackland air force base at one time. I was like, I've never wow. seen one or two and there was tons. I don't think I've seen one after that. Yeah. You know, within a two year period, I don't, I don't know where they all went. Yeah. Yeah, it, that's that's a tough one, you know. Um, so, it, you know, if we're speaking about this, the, the Leica type dogs, and there's a number of them. Like I say, they're from um, East and West Siberia. They're from uh, Karelia, which is northern Russia, mm-hmm. uh, Finland, uh, Norway, the Norwegian elk hound, and, you know, those folks. There's even from Turkey and places like that. The problem is there's two things. One, they're relatively rareish breeds that are not, you know, completely standardized. There's no... Um, you know, German type club that has breed wardens with massive pedigree databases and genetic testing and stuff there, you know, for the most part, we're always just bred by local guys mm. because it was just the dog of the area. And now there are, you know, top notch breeders, I suppose there's even a breed club and some of these breeds are being introduced to the States and people want them. I know there's a guy up in Washington, a friend of mine mentioned he had Carillion bear dogs. They were using them to scare off hard, hard release dogs. Yeah. yeah so they're there. But, you know, the scenario of finding little Timmy in the forest, the problem is, is that these dogs, their search behavior and their barking and their baying is sort of an adversarial thing. In other words, Mm. they're out there looking for something to have a standoff with. They're not looking to save something. They're out there looking, they want to quarrel with it. In other words, the reason they don't get into a fight is because it's a bear or it's a moose that's bigger than them, you know, or they don't kill the bird is because it, it jumps into a tree or stands its ground and flaps its wings at them sort of thing. So that would have to be overcome two things. One, the systemic, the sort of, you know, of how do you breed these dogs and kind of getting a good line of them and then inbreeding them and really sort of, you know, getting a lot of the, who knows what issues they have within them genetically or whatever, how pure or not they are, those sorts of things. So you would have to do that grunt work in terms of, you know, sort of straightening out whatever the breed is. Uh, or the line within the breed. And then the other one would be changing that sort of adversarial thing to a more, once I've found it, I'm going to bark at it, but I'm going to bark of joy. I'm going to bark because I'm happy for it. Not because, 
this is something that I need to, you know, quarrel with and, and fight with. So, but, but that is the behavior. That is basically what they've been designed to do is to seek something. And when they find it to alert the hunter and uh, they alert it by barking. Yeah. I, so I the, think that, that brings, that, that brings up uh, one area I would like to go into. And this, you know, a lot of breeders, this may ruffle feathers when it comes to this, but we've done, as you talked about, like there's a problem, like all this is good except for it's adversarial, right? You know, um, but maybe what, what we would, in the detection world, you're talking about these, these breeds and this applies to, to the pointers, um, draw hours, like the problem I was having with the draw hour on top of him having a trained prey drive to the point you couldn't trust him, um, was that they had a, the draw had a great nose. This dog has this ability to go out and hunt independently that you're talking about and, but recall and refine, but we don't want that adversarial thing. So why not outcross? Why not, why not take a platform? But then we've done this. I have, I have labs right now that are one eight, one sixteen that we catch, we captured the, the, the phenotype that we wanted that was in that breed based on what it was developed for. But we brought it, we watered it down. We kept it. And, but we, we got everything else we wanted with another breed like the lab. Um, but we don't have the problems, the other problems with the breed that we, we crossed it with. So, for example, we could, you could take the lock and maybe I'll cross it to a platform that's a good detection dog. You're going to get high variability. You're going to get low su- success rate in doing it. But then you take those individuals that are that mixture that you want, bring them back in your breeding program and then increase that breeding inbreeding coefficient to stabilize it but hold on to that phenotype the recall refine or with the draw dye that I crossed the lab air sending a really good nose and understanding of air sending take it to the next level of lab it never been to they look like labs they behave just like labs but their nose and their innate their ability their natural ability to air scent is there from the drop mm-hmm. yeah no, yeah, uh, you, could, you could do a, yeah. you could do a similar thing with uh, with mm. spaniels and uh, pointing yep. dogs, and it's been done before. Yep. Um, so I had there. There's one breed of pointing dog called a Pont Audemer Spaniel, which is basically a, a classic French Epagne uh, Francais or French Setter crossed with a uh, Irish uh, water dog, uh, Irish water spaniel. And I had one. My wife had one. And this little dog, it's a it's a French breed. It's been around for hundreds of years, and everybody knows it, but. Um, it's quite rare, but we had one and she was a wonderful dog, but she worked like a spaniel, except she pointed. So she, she never went more than 40 yards. She was our best peasant dog by far. She was just this little active, little animated dog that would run around. And, and when she found something just like a, she, she if you didn't know what she was going to do at the end of it, you would have thought she's a spaniel, that she's a springer. <laughs> she got the flush um, and she pointed. <laughs> exactly. Except instead of flushing, she pointed. Yeah. And it was wonderful. I loved working with that dog because she was just such a joy to watch. But it was really cool, especially for pheasants, because you do want to get into position to be able to get a shot. You don't want, I personally, I don't like using flushing dogs much because it, it, they're just, I'm just too surprised by the damn bird flying up that I <laughs> missed my shot normally. But uh, well, you didn't dog, read it. You didn't read it. Change of behavior. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> it. Well, with this dog, you couldn't tell. Its tail was always yeah. just a little nub was always just going. But that's the thing. I mean, uh, y- you can do that. So if you've got a, a, a line of, of uh, spaniels that are working great for you, except that right at the end, they just get too animated. Well, cross over with a pointing dog and see if you could attenuate mm-hmm. it that way. Because I think ultimately we're talking about 
you know, types of dogs developed for a type of thing. Well, search and rescue didn't exist, you know, mm-hmm. back in the day and bomb detection didn't exist. I mean, this is a modern problem, which mm-hmm. probably requires a modern strain or a modern type of dog that mm-hmm. is just like the other ones, a blend of everything else. I mean, you know, take a look at the spaniels and the setters and the pointers and all these other ones. They're a mix of various things that just got the right mix. You've got the attributes, like you say, you've got this sort of foundation and you build upon that. And so you've got a variety of foundations to build upon. And that's, that's what I would do personally. Um, but then again, you need a system to do it. As you said, if you saw a hundred Vishlas one year and then two years later, they're all gone. It's because the system wasn't robust enough or it wasn't selective enough. And then that, and that's what I'm getting at is, is like, just because this has a great, uh, great behavior that is, is bred into this dog for its work, but not all of it is. Don't seek that dog out and buy every one of them and force them into the work. Take that characteristic, make a detection dog. And, you know, through breeding, instead of buying up all of them, and now they start mass producing and the quality goes down. And, you know, I, and I'm not, I don't want it to sound like, cause I'm probably going to sound hypocritical here, but you know, I'm, I'm big on pedigrees too and understanding pedigrees and breeding and huge on that. I'm not just crossing things and, you know, and just breeding willy nilly is, is the, is the pedigrees give you consistency, but also understanding the background of the breed and taking attributes and not exhausting one group of dogs. We need a detection dog and you need a detection dog for that task. Yeah. Well, there's, so it brings me to a question and we've kind of covered it, but not completely. And this is somewhat Mm -hmm. also selfish. And I'm curious to hear, you know, both your and Craig's opinion on this. Or, or information on this. So, okay. So in the Spaniel family, you have the working cocker and you mm-hmm. have the Springer Spaniel, which is what we in detection see the most. Um, what is the main difference, you know, in its genetic use and why it's been used? And then my follow on to that question is how come the Spaniel breeds are in detection are so much more popular in Europe and the rest of the world uh, or why are they so popular in Europe and the rest of the world? I know why they're not as popular here. That's just more of an image thing and that's changing now, but what made them so popular uh, in Europe? So I guess first is the difference what the difference between the two are and what they're kind of bred to do. So the listeners can understand. And then two, what got them so popular in the rest of the world? Well, I'm going to, I'm going to say one thing and then hand it off to Greg on this one is what we discussed the first time is, um, me talking to him from our world. And he told me that everything keeps coming back down to his understanding is culture. hundred percent. Yeah. Um, it is, it's all about the culture. They are basically, as I said before, a dog, a dog breed is nothing but, you know, a shared idea that's made manifest. It's just this idea that people share in their minds and they make it, they create it basically. And so if we look, um, sometimes language is important. So what is a cocker? Why is it called a cocker spaniel? Because it was developed to hunt woodcock. Therefore it becomes a cocker spaniel, a woodcocking dog. Springer spaniel is because the old English term that you to flush a pheasant, a pheasant doesn't flush a pheasant springs. Um, the British are great for that. They have all kinds of great words, you know, for all sorts of different things. And so a Springer Spaniel and a Cocker Spaniel were basically the same thing up until I believe around 1900, uh, you would have Cockers and Springers in the same litter. 
they were basically spaniels. Um, and then, you know, flushing spaniels. Everybody knew what spaniels did. It, it ran around and flushed birds. There's the Columbus spaniel and Sussex, etc. But the Springer and the Cocker, you would have them in the same litter. It's just that you would divide them by size. Mm. Woodcock are a bird that, that, that tends to be <laughs> in a much tougher, um, uh, tighter cover. So the smaller dogs were better at flushing woodcock. And, oh, that's a good cocker you've got there. Well, I've got one from the same litter. He's a bigger one. He's, you know, 50% bigger than the other one. He's really great for springing pheasants. He's a springer. So once the breed clubs were established and the, the you know, sort of the idea that the breeds should be independent and separate, they've, they've gone their separate ways. So, you know, for 100 and, almost 150 years now, uh, springers have been bred along one line and, and cockers on the other to do more or less the same thing. Um, it's just that springers tend to be bigger and stronger. So again, if you, if you have a bigger game like hare and pheasants, they tend to be, you know, and, and for retrieving ducks or geese, they tend to be better. Um, cockers smaller, so you can fit more in your pocket or on the side of a horse or wherever you are. You can, they're just smaller and they're able to get into smaller areas, but what happened was is the cocker we got, both of them are enormously popular in their homeland. Homeland is England. And they've spread out, you know, in various places in Europe. Um, and, uh, but the English are, are sort of, they're like we are too. I mean, every breed gets split between show and field bred dogs. So you have those that are showed and they don't really hunt and those that hunt and they don't. And, and the Springer Spaniels, if you look at the show bred ones and the uh, field bred ones, in the UK, as, as in the US, they look like different breeds. And the same thing mm-hmm. with the cocker. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's a third cocker breed or, or a different cocker. That, that's the American cocker spaniel. And that was mm-hmm. happened mid-century last time. Um, but so, so the difference is there isn't much, really. It, it, it's in terms of size. Um, you know, it's in terms of they've been bred separately for the last few hundred years. Um, and that the cocker got even more. I think the cocker is probably the number one. There's something like 20 or 25,000 cockers bred every year in the UK. Wow. Uh, and they all actually trace back to a limited gene pool. That's one of the problems with the cocker. It's, it's sort of a, it's, it's, it's kind of an enigma in that it's ironic that one of the breeds that there's so many of them, they actually have problems with the inbreeding coefficient is relatively yeah. high. Yeah. So there's, there's, you know, a bunch of genetic related diseases and problems and issues with them. Um, the Springers were famous for spaniel rage syndrome where yeah. uh, they would just all of a sudden, it's a genetic thing. I mean, almost like a form of epilepsy, but they would just suddenly and for no reason become violent and attack their mm-hmm. owners. Very rare, but it happened. So there's, there's genetic issues in them simply because they've just been so overbred and inbred. Now, to combat that, there has been, over the last few, I would say, couple of decades, uh, a dog called a Sprocker, which is a Springer mm-hmm. and a Cocker. Mm-hmm. The UK and, use them for detection work all the time. Yep. Yeah, apparently mm-hmm. the Queen had mm-hmm. one, and it was a big controversy mm-hmm. because the English are very <laughs> particular about having pure breeds. You know, they're still buying into the Victorian age, you know, blue blood, mm-hmm. you know, breed, you know, close as possible. Um, and they still, you know, follow that. So anybody outside of that is just, it freaks them out. Right. And so I think it was because the queen, you know, she's a sporting woman and sports woman and she likes to hunt and shoot and, and great controversy. Um, when, when they, it was shown she was on a shoot and, and they were claiming that the dog was a sprocker. Um, and so, you know, I mean, that's, that's another issue is that the crossbreeding I think is going to become more of the norm. And I'm like you, Bart, I, I think pedigrees are incredibly 
valuable resource, but they are not the law and they are not the be all and end all. Mm-hmm. No, 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 they allow you to play blackjack instead of pulling the, <laughs> the lever at the slot machine. But if we're, if we're going to gamble a little bit, let's hedge our bets and let's play with some with some rules. Exactly. The, yeah. yeah, it's where you can see some of the cards. And now that we're getting closer into the genome, or, or taking a closer look into the what we've, we've you know done the entire genome of the of canines. Now that we can get an even deeper dive, it's like now we've got you know a magnifying glass on the cards that we have um, in terms of mixed breeding. So yeah, definitely you could do that from pedigrees as a starting point. But mm-hmm. one thing I would point out to you guys is that there's a pretty interesting um, Facebook group, and it's called Outcross for Life. And generally, it's it's a bunch of breeders with purebred dogs that are trying to cross to other breeds. To their their main goal is to um, prevent or or ameliorate, reduce genetic uh, issues in their breeds. Mm-hmm. So breeds that have a very very small uh, gene pool or a very high inbreeding coefficient, they they outcross to other things. And so it's a really fascinating group because it's just post after post of some guy doing, hey, I bred this to that, and this is why, and here's what I got. Here's the F one. Here's the F two. Here's the F three generation. And there's a member of that group and her name is Carol. And I don't know how to pronounce her last name. I've spoken to her before, but it's B-E-U-C-H-A-T. I know in French, I would say Beauchat, but maybe Bouchet, Carol Bouchet. And she is the, um, she, she runs the Institute of Canine Biology. Mm-hmm. And on that Facebook group called Outcross for Life, she, she posted a link to one of her blog posts called What Breed Should You Cross With? And she says breeds battling with high inbreeding and low genetic diversity uh, might wonder about doing crossbreeding. But what breed? There is always everybody's first question about crossbreeding. So here's what you do. So she says the first thing you do is let's look at the DNA. And she has a whole bunch of charts and it's a really cool article. Um, And anyway, that's the group that I would recommend if you're thinking about that. Because the more I speak with you guys and the more I think about it, the more I, I lean towards the idea that you need to establish or you need to start with an established foundation of breeds that have been that a lot, like a lot of the grunt work's been done over the last couple of hundred years for you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's right yes. there. Yes. That That's raw material is there. Yep. That, that raw material is there. The pedigrees are there. The information is there. And you've got new tools that the guys who developed these breeds a couple hundred years ago would only dream about. You know, like imagine telling some guy in 1900 that you could, you know, take the genome apart of an entire (laughs) species of animals. He didn't even know what a gene was, you know? And Mm -hmm. so you've got tools that were not available to these people, these people back then to do what you want. That's what I would do. I would start with this really solid base of something and then go to town. (laughs) I agree with you. And that, that prevents the problem. And that's why we, you know, um, keep hammering this is, say the spaniel is good or something pops up is good and then it just gets, that's just what everybody's going to use. Why is it good? And why can't we take things from it? Why and put it, mix it with other breeds? Cause I've, I've, I've got, I've got labs. You can't tell they're not purebred labs, but they're one eight draw dye and they're everything mm-hmm. that I want, you know? Um, and, and who cares, who cares? But the, the pedigrees, do play a huge role. And like, even with our labs, like what I look at is our foundation, like you're saying, the baseline, get, get some start. Our foundation was genetic stock donated from Australian customs when we started our breeding program. And I, I believe they don't, they, they donated genetics to three different entities in the, in the U S um, at the time they did it. We're the ones, only ones still going. Um, but they had some good, 
good good attributes, but they, they weren't everything. So we, we generally said they were soft, not soft from pressure and punishment so much as stress and work. You know, when problems got hard, they got defeated. You know, they had that, that attitude of defeat. So we put some American lines in them, um, com- you know, competition, hunt, test, field trial lines. So, like, my pedigrees would look like, and I'll just tell you, like, lab um, would be, there's a lot of uh, good ones. And they, they, the dogs that we talk about being cooperative and wanting to work and work with you and wanting to please you, but having all the motivation in the world, you see some of that, that British in there. And I know when I say British lab that people are going to, you know, get trouble, but there are British labs that are not your big, short, stocky, overweight, out of shape, could never work, AKC, not, sorry, not say AKC, sorry, a show, AKC show dog. You know, these are working dogs from your, from, from Britain that they're, they're separate. So like, uh, the kennel name I always come back to, and this is just me sitting hours and flipping through pedigrees of all the generations of dogs we've bred our thousandth dog or coming up on our thousandth dog now is Drake's head. That's one that keeps popping in. I know nothing about it other than it is consistent in throwing me what I want. But then we would take a dog like that and it was made better when you combine it with things like a dog in the U.S. His name's Dare to Dream. He's known, he's, he's known as Cosmo, right? But you've got to be careful with Cosmo and you got to be careful with too much of the British. So if you had all Cosmo, you've got too hot of a dog. You've got too de- independent, too high energy. He'll never learn to run a marathon. He will overheat. He will keep dry running this dog that you're working. If he's full of that, but this balance, and that's what we've done with our breeding program is, is put that together and there, you know, the British and that, and you can, you know, even within the labs, because basically within labs, they might there there's lines that might as well be a different breed. Like with the like Emma was talking about labs at point. I have those in there. And those come from British lines crossed with Americans. So the prey drive got to the point that they, they instead of flushing, it overtook them and they went to that catatonic state we talked about. So but we can do it with different breeds crossing as well as within a breed. Yeah. No, yeah, it, definitely because a lot a lot of the differences within a breed are like <laughs> as, yeah. as between breeds. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, it, and it's what I found interesting too recently was how just even the spaniels are different in the United States than in England, <laughs> and it's yes. significantly different. Even with you know, even within the English, they look at it and go, "Wow, that's you know, I'm surprised, uh, you know, how different that is." Uh, over here, like I guess over there, the working cockers have had more issues, but over here, the working cockers are really nice and, and do stuff. And then the springers here are also pretty nice, but the springers there are viewed more as utilitarian and so forth. So really interesting how, you know, that there's just a you know difference just because we're across the Atlantic, but like you guys keep bringing up, it comes back down to cultures and the culture, you know, the hunting uh, breeders here in the United States and what they're breeding for. One of the guys I use uh, and what he's, you know, he's multi-generational with his lines and um, it, it's just pretty interesting. And then looping that back around to that, 
the crossbreedings, you know, like we, I think we've kind of hit on a little bit, but like the Springer door and this, of course, the Sprocker, which you guys just brought up um, mm-hmm. and how those are coming around. I'm seeing more and more Springer doors um, because people are wanting to combine that quality of a Labrador, mix it with a Springer. Uh, so, yeah. One I'd be interested to see, I've seen two was, and they're almost Spaniel-like, uh, but I'm not sure Craig may correct me and say, no, they just, you know, look like it on the outside is I've seen some monster landers that would be very interesting in crossing in for detection work. I've seen two and they were phenomenal detection dogs. And I don't know if it's because they're so rare or these were just two unique ones, you know, cause any dog could be a detection dog. But when you start running numbers that, that the game I play is numbers and not every dog, you know, then you have to get based on breeds to hedge your bets there. What color were they? Black uh, and white or brown and white? One was um, uh, black, black and white, and um, well, I know what you're getting at because I have one at my parents' house. It wasn't the Dutch long hair. I have a, a German long hair pointer at my parents' house. It wasn't one of those. It, it was more of white and spotted. The two I saw. Yeah, because the, so there yeah. are two monster landers. The large monster yeah. lander is, is bigger mm-hmm. than the small monster yeah. lander. The large monster lander is black and white, and the small monster lander is is brown and white. Okay, um, it, was brown, it was brown and white. Yeah, yeah. So that's mm-hmm. a small monster lander, which is a much more common dog in Germany mm-hmm. uh, and in North America as well. There's some very good ones of both breeds, but mm-hmm. they're again very typical of the German breeds. They're going to be very similar to a German long hair pointer. With they mm-hmm. are in fact related. Um, they've only been separated, you know, since the early 1900s. Um, but they're similar, but yeah, I mean, that would be a good base as well. I mean, they all are, um, mm-hmm. but none of them are exactly, you know, that's my dog work in there. Uh, none of them are exactly what you're looking for, but it depends. What do you want to build on and what do you yeah, want to add to exactly. it? You know? And I think that, I think that going forward that people always ask me, you know, things are changing so much in the dog breeding world. What's the future, you know, of these breed clubs and breeds and everything. And I just say that, in my view, the, the future is going to be a lot like the past. It's going to be another period like the late 1800s of experimentation, of crosses, of creation of new breeds and of, of hybrid breeds. Because the information is so available to us and because mm-hmm. the clubs are losing a lot of their power over the decisions of people and there's a lot less stigma to, well, I bred this to that. People aren't going to, you know, mm-hmm. sort of refuse your, your, you know, or it will no longer invite you to dinner or to the barbecue. You know, you're, you're, you're going to be castigated or, or cast out of the group if you start crossbreeding. I think that that's going away. And yeah. so I think people are going to be freed up a little bit to do more of that sort of thing. And there's going to be a lot of failures, but there's going to be a few successes. Yeah, and I think that, you know, 25, 40 years from now, people are going to look back and go, oh, that's when that got started or that's when this <laughs> breed got started. But now it's, it's the most popular, it's the most common one because Let's face it. I mean, we're talking about breeds that were developed 150 years ago, mm-hmm. right? I mean, they're all ancient and they were developed by people who were forward thinking, uh, you know, willing to open their minds and to take chances and cross this and see what they got. All of a sudden, you know, came this period of time where it said, okay, that's it. No more experimenting people. We perfected the dog. You must keep it within this line. <laughs> you, you know, like yeah, that, I think is that whole house of cards is coming crumbling down right now. Well, it's, it's, it's at the same time in, in the training of detection dogs is the same thing. I mean, Cameron can tell you probably better than me is you're seeing a huge change and open becoming open-minded in, in the, the styles of training, understanding training, instead of saying for the last 50 years, we did it this way. We perfected it. 
And this is how it is. And we're going to do that with every dog that we train for any type of work. This is how we do it. You're seeing that change at the same time. And, and it's, it's just, I've heard people refer to it as the Renaissance period of mm-hmm. dog training, but I think it's, it's, it's hopefully it's shifting into um, production and, and, and breeding dogs. And, you know, the problem we've always come back to is relying on someone else that we could go get them easily from. But, you know, in our, you know, in the U.S., protection dogs, we've got to learn how to do it ourselves. And at the same time, if we're going to be this open-minded and about changing our training techniques for our task and understanding why we train dogs away, we understand what the dogs are, like we talked about, where they come from, and understand that we don't, we don't have to continue this purebred um, thing because it's been detrimental. We can, we can cross um, and we can use multiple different breeds for different niche applications in, in working dogs, especially detection work, and keep everything going. I think you see all that happen simultaneously mm-hmm. within the last 10 to 12 years in my experience. Yep. And it's, and it's doing it responsibly. That's the other hard part yeah. that happens is yeah. uh, when the money gets involved, it turns into just breed until we can fulfill demand without breed with a purpose, which is goes into a lot of the arguments that exist for, you know, the shelter dogs and all those kind of things. You know, as long as we do things with a purpose and a design and like we talked about a plan, you know, what the objective is, then we can move forward. And then adding to it the training and the raising, obviously Mm -hmm. you kind of hit that a second ago is our biggest deficiency here in the United States is that rearing from puppy to, you know, working dog. Uh, mm-hmm. there hasn't been the, the, uh, the structure enough, uh, throughout the United States with people that are skilled in that. There's plenty of people that yeah. can be a handler or a trainer. Uh, there's plenty of breeders. It's that rearing aspect is where we have been the most efficient and, and hopefully that gets better and better over time as it, we become self-deficient, uh, self-sufficient. It's, yeah. It's, sim- it, it, it's as simple as what Craig keeps hammering on is the culture. We didn't have the culture in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, that they have had in Europe from, um, from the hunting breeds for hundreds of years and, and in competition work with your pointy-eared dogs that we didn't have here. And we're, we're trying to catch up, but I, I think, you know, I think we're getting close and, you know, um, instead of relying on, if we had someone in this country breeding dogs is two or three individuals breeding hundreds of dogs, thousands of dogs through, you know, a few individuals is, more of an industry of quality and small numbers um, through numerous um, individuals with kennels. Instead of kennels where you breed bird dogs to go hunting, now you see, you know, mom and pop operations breeding three litters a year for detection work and being profitable. Yeah. Yep. And, and I think that's where a lot of them fear that like they wouldn't mm-hmm. be profitable, but it, it, if you do it right and it does take a little bit of a village, you mm-hmm. can't just do it all mm-hmm. yourself. Um, you know, I, as you guys know, I keep trying to show how it can be done. We've done just yeah. in the past, I would say year and a half, 13 dogs that probably more than that. Now I got a couple more, uh, that we've raised and they've been successful in turning into detection dogs out of that, you know, detection dog can range from sport detection all the way to professional. We weren't locked into, they all had to be bomb dogs or they all had to be drug dogs. You know, there's a, there's once been a conservation dog. There's been a, uh, one or two sport. Then the rest have been Mm -hmm. in some form of either firearms, narcotics, explosives, whatever it, it was. But we took each dog 
and viewed each dog and said, okay, what is this dog best for as far as, you know, detection capability and, and its purpose? And that was what made it successful and financially successful as a business. So, you know, as people get into this more, you know, there you have to get educated on what to do, how to raise them. Uh, then you have to get, of course, educated on at the steps of, you know, introducing odor and so on and so forth. So, uh, again, we I think we're all in agreement. It's it's good to see this industry uh, making changes and it's conversations like this that are happening that are sharing the knowledge from individuals such as yourselves to help others understand these breeds to understand how we got to where we're at. And then how the, like Craig said, the roadmap's already been drawn out. There's certain aspects that will add to it, but a lot of the hard work's been done. We can now take this information and become better. So I, I really thank you guys for coming on and sharing all this information and uh, allowing our listeners to get better informed about these breeds and breed categories and traits that all of these dogs have, especially all of us that do detection. No problem, man. That's yeah, you're very welcome. I'm here for Yeah. Very interesting topic for sure. Absolutely. Well, for all the listeners, thank you guys for tuning in. And of course, like I said, Bart and Craig, thank you guys for coming on the show. Everybody, just remember, keep tuning in to Canines Talking Sense, where it's okay to be nosy. 